Our gospel lesson is from Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 13 through 20. Hear now God's words to you. You are like salt for everyone on earth. But if salt no longer tastes like salt, how can it make food salty? All it is good for is to be thrown out and walked on. You are like the light for the whole city. A city built on top of a hill can't be hidden. And no one would light a lamp and put it under a clay pot. A lamp is placed on a lampstand where it can give light to everyone in the house. Make your light shine so that others will see the good that you do and will praise your Father in heaven. Don't suppose that I came to do away with the law and the prophets. I did not come to do away with them, but to give them their full meaning. Heaven and earth may disappear, but I promise you not even a period or comma will ever disappear from the law. What is written in it must happen. If you reject even the least important command of the law and teach others to do the same, you will be the least important person in the kingdom of heaven. But if you obey and teach others its commands, you will have an important place in the kingdom. You must obey God's commands better than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law obey them. If you don't, I promise you, you will never get in to the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. I like local figures of speech, colloquialisms, the odd turn of a phrase. I grew up in western North Carolina, and then I spent 17 years in Banner Elk, and trust me, in the mountains there are some really odd phrases. If someone says to you when you offer them something, well, I don't care to, you'd think that meant no, wouldn't you? It doesn't. It means yes, thank you. But I've also discovered here in East Tennessee, you got some pretty weird phrases too. <laughs> it's just the way it is. It's been just a little less than 10 years ago that I was riding around here in the Colonial Heights area, uh, Kingsport area, with two members of the search committee that was bringing me to this church. And they were showing me all these subdivisions scattered around all over the place. And the truth was, I was absolutely lost. I didn't know where I was. But we'd go up one hill and we'd go into a little valley and we'd go up another hill and we'd come off that hill into another little valley. And so finally I kept saying, okay, now when we've crossed this ridge, what is the, what's behind that? And I kept using the word ridge. Well, they suddenly started laughing at me. And they said, we don't call them ridges here. They're hills and they're mountains. And I said, no, they're not. They may be little bitty hills, but they sure aren't big enough to be mountains. Where I come from, we call them ridges. <laughs> but there's another figure of speech that I suspect every one of you've heard, and I'm really sure that if you're a parent, you've used it. From the mouth of my mother, it always came out, Who do you think you are? Heard that one? <laughs> Use that one, perhaps? Well, it was always done when parents were less than pleased with what their offspring had done. In our family, it was a little different. I thought Karen was going to be gone today, so that's why I put this in. <laughs> but she's here. Her mother said to, to 
to Karen as a little girl, and then we passed it on to our children. Who do you think you are, the Queen of Sheba? <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but we used it and thought it was pretty funny. But in a very real sense, that's what Jesus is saying in today's lesson. But he's saying it with an entirely different inflection in his voice. He's not saying, who do you think you are? What he's saying is, I know who you are. I have expectations of who you really are. So who are we? What do we say about ourselves? What do we think about who we are? Now, that's a question that depends upon, I guess, in large measure, the way we look on life. For those of us who are sort of out of the Calvinist tradition and believe in the fallen nature of humanity, it's awfully easy to look out on the world and say, we're an awful lot less than we ought to be. You know, we believe pretty strongly in sin. But there are others who look at humanity and see all the good things that humanity does and says, well, but there's also good in human beings. Now, I suspect that really there is a combination of that in all of us. So both of them are true, more or less. Almost Sundays when you come to church, what do you really expect to hear? I believe that oftentimes people come to church expecting to be told what they've done wrong so you'll figure out how to go and correct it in the week ahead. I used to have a fella in a different church who would come to me every so often and he'd say, you're going to beat up on us today? As if that were my job, to beat up on you and somehow make you feel bad and, and through feeling bad, I don't know, find some level of I don't know, redemption? I'm not sure. But I'm not sure that preaching is supposed to be about beating up on people. One author has said that there is this gospel that is done in the imperative mood. It is, you ought, you should, you must. And there's plenty of that in the gospels. This year, our gospel lectionary is mostly Matthew, and Matthew does a great deal in the imperative. It's filled with such things as judge not lest you be judged. That's an imperative. The gate is wide that he leads to destruction. Again, an imperative. Matthew has lots of shoulds and oughts and musts. But here in the fifth chapter, coming off from a couple of Sundays ago of what we call the Beatitudes and now into today's text, there's not so much of this imperative. You must do this. You ought to do this. Jesus says, no, blessed are you. Blessed are you already if you're poor in spirit, if you're meek, if you're pure in heart. Do you notice that Jesus isn't talking in imperatives there? There's no, you must do this. You've got to do that. No, it's a word of blessing. Now, most of you understand, and you certainly caught it in the way the text was read this morning, the word blessed is also the same word for happy. Oh, how happy are those who... And then it gives the list. 
the poor in spirit, the meek in heart. Now, I know there is a great deal in the preaching of Jesus that has to do with the imperative. It demands a lifestyle from us, but not today. That's not really what today's text is doing. It is rather a word not just of comfort, of hope, but of expectation of this is who I already know you are. When we move into the 11th verse, and we didn't read that this morning, it's at the end of the Beatitudes, there's another kind of a shift that sort of sets up today's text. Jesus has been talking to the crowd, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed, happy, you understand. And then suddenly it's as if he turns and looks right at the disciples as he goes in and he says, but happy are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of false things against you. I don't know about you, but I am not particularly happy when folks are uttering vile things about me, even if it is on behalf of the kingdom. But it doesn't seem to matter to Jesus. Jesus understands that persecution may not be our idea of a good time, but the truth is most of us don't know much about persecution. We may have somebody mad at us occasionally, but you know that's the sort of thing we say, get over it. What he says is, blessed are you if that happens because that's the way they treated the prophets who came before you. You understand what Jesus is doing here? He's taking this ragtag little group of disciples, a handful of ex-fishermen, an ex-IRS agent, a terrorist, that's who zealots were, at least in the eyes of the Romans. Women of ill repute, folks from all kinds of backgrounds, and then he says, you're like the prophets. Like Isaiah and Micah and Anna and Jeremiah, you are truth tellers for me. That's who I think you are. And then Jesus still talking to the disciples and then to us because we're the modern disciples says you're not just prophets. You are salt. Salt for the entire earth. You are light for the world. Now go out there and be salty. Get out there and shine. Notice Jesus doesn't say you ought to be salt. You should be light. He says, you are. You already are. Whether even if you don't want to be, you already are. Who would believe it? Who would believe that folks like us are those first ragtag disciples? Personally, I identify more with the salt that's lost its flavor variety. Too often that's who it seems like I am or life that gets hidden under a bushel. Jesus, this little-known prophet in this backwater province of a great empire, turns to a group of inconsequential people and says, the message of love and hope of God is going to take over the world and guess who's going to help me? You. 
You're going to be the ones that help spread this message. Whoa. That's a lot more than I expect out of me. I've been around the church a long time. That's a lot more than I expect out of you. (laughs) But that's what Jesus expects from us. We're told that most of us eat way too much salt. I don't know about that. I'm not a physician. We have some physicians present. I'm sure they can tell us that. But table salt, that tiny fragment of two deadly elements, sodium and chlorine, both so poisonous or so reactive that they will kill you. But you put them together and they're absolutely essential. You've got to have it or you can't be alive. On the other hand, salt's not all that significant by itself. Nobody eats just salt. We got a bag of nuts from the grocery store, you know, the kind that are in bulk, and you just put the bag under and it runs it in. And when I opened it, I realized, what's these white blobs? There were chunks of salt like this in it. You don't eat salt by itself. Nobody can stand that. But it is essential because it gives flavor. We disciples are small. We're inconsequential. But sprinkle a few of us around and you might be surprised at what happens. Because disciples are what gives zest and flavor and vision of Jesus to the world. In spite of the many times that we have behaved as if we did not have the flavor, can you imagine world without some salty Christians in it. Well, I can't and I don't want to. And yet every one of us is aware that the influence of the faith is diminishing in some ways today. Did anybody have to fight off the crowds to get in the door of church this morning? You probably didn't even have to wait for somebody to go through the door. Even here in safe Secure Kingsport. There's a fair amount of indifference. It may not be hostility, but it's just, yeah, so what? But a little salt flavors the whole thing. Years ago, we lived in Banner Elk, as most of you know. And, of course, the church there sits immediately adjacent to the college campus. And so in anybody who found out that I served that church and it was next to one of our schools would say, how many college students do you have coming to church? That is an awful question to ask the church next to a college because to my knowledge, college students don't go to church much. <clears throat> but I picked up on a phrase from a fellow who was a chaplain at another school somewhere else. And he said, a few, just enough to make the rest of the campus nervous salt. Just a little spice. Salt and light. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. Now, we don't think about that. We say, Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus turns around and says, no, you're also the light for the world. Without you, the world will not see what is ultimately important. It cannot see what it should become. How can the world know the superficial until it comes face to face with people who aren't? 
How can the world understand the cruelty of and the slavery of sin until it founds, finds people who've really found freedom? We've said it many times, but you may be the only light somebody's going to see. You may be the only Bible that somebody's going to ever read. Don't hide it under the basket. The world is absolutely right in judging us by how well we reflect Jesus. And if we're not reflecting Jesus very well, shame on us. Disciples who don't look like disciples, salt that doesn't taste like salt, those are problematic, aren't they? But what a great gift it is to be called and challenged to be a part of this vision Jesus has for us. And it happens in the little things you do. It happened last week in this room, eh, a few an hour later than now, when we packed 10,000 meals. Who would have believed it? And some one person said, well, why didn't we spend some stuff locally? We did. We sent almost as much money to the local food bank as we sent off in those packaged meals. It's the little things. It's the way we live our life. It's the way we spend our money. It's the way we laugh or don't laugh at the dirty jokes somebody tells. It's the way we remind people when they're being unkind or when their racism is showing or their sexism or anything else. But that's not who we are. It's those little things. Jesus challenges us and says, you're salt and light, now get out there and transform. Let the world see you, know you, and become different. We're all here today for dozens of different reasons, including a whole bunch of them we don't fully understand. But in the context of our worship, this Jesus, this real light of the world turns to us and says, you know who I think you are? I think you're salt. And I think you're light. Now get out there and do it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.